When you look at your own life these days, when you survey what it is that you have in your hands, do you feel blessed? Are you able to say of your life, this is a blessed life I'm living? What if you had it or more of it would make your life even more blessed than it already is? And really, how do you begin to define a life of blessing in the first place? And what does the Christmas story tell us that helps us set our sights arightly? This is what I invite you to come discover afresh with me tonight as we think together upon the wonder of Christmas grace. Seems like Christmas time, that question of what really constitutes a life of grace gets surfaced again. And we're forced to ask ourselves what we really believe about it. It seems that all around us, the world is trying to help us with this question. It's always trying to give us a picture of what it really means to live the blessed life. Brian Wilkerson suggests that if someone were to write a Beatitudes for the 21st century, it might go something like this. Blessed are the rich and famous, for they can always get a seat at the best restaurants. Blessed are the good-looking, for they shall be on the cover of People magazine. Blessed are those who party, for they shall know how to have fun. Blessed are those who take first place in their division, for they shall have momentum going into the playoffs. Blessed are those who are movers and shakers, for they shall make a name for themselves. Blessed are those who demand their rights, for they shall not be overlooked. Blessed are the healthy and fit, for they shall not mind being seen in a bathing suit. And blessed are those who make it to the top because they get to look down on everyone else. Wealth and fame, beauty and brawn, revelry and victory, power and position. These are the blessings we're constantly being told to seek even at Christmas time. This is the vision of the blessed life presented to us. Much of our society, it seems, is focused on peddling and pandering to and pursuing these things. One might even say that we worship these things. It's the devoted purpose of so much of our airtime, of our resources. But can these kinds of blessings really address the deepest needs of our lives? Can they really provide the power to change character, to close the great divisions of our time, to bring us the peace that we seek personally and as a community and as a world? Or is there actually something else to be found? Something perhaps once discovered, say, long ago by those who made the journey 
to Bethlehem. Matthew's Gospel says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, Magi came from the east, came to Jerusalem, and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. As some of you will know, the term Magi is a Persian word. It's used to describe wise men or priests of an ancient religion known as Zoroastrianism. On the one hand, many magi were little more than would-be wizards and dabblers in the occult. We get our word magician from that name magi. But there were also magi who were much more like scholars than they were like sorcerers. You see, unlike most of the other religions of that time, the Zoroastrians believed that there was only one God and that his ways could be discerned through the study of astrological movements, the pattern and rhythms of history, and the teachings of great religious traditions. They were known for amassing enough wisdom in this pursuit of the truth that kings of the ancient world frequently sought out the counsel of such magi on important matters of religion and science and law. In fact, this is where we get our word magistrate. Magistrate. We know from the Old Testament book of Daniel, for example, that a group of magi frequently advised the famous king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, it may well have been during the prophet Daniel's long tenure in the court of Babylon that the magi heard more of the God of the Jews and became acquainted with the prophecies of the Jewish people that this God was planning to do something very dramatic that would bless the entire world by sending to the world a Messiah, someone who would be a king above all kings. And so, like the Jews, the Magi began waiting too. It seems likely that the Magi passed along the Jewish prophecies from one generation to the next. There was the prophecy from the book of Numbers that said that a star will come out of Jacob, a scepter will rise out of Israel. There was Micah's prophecy that you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, out of you will come a ruler who will become the shepherd of my people Israel. There was Isaiah's prediction that a virgin would be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. There was the further promise that the people living in darkness shall see a great light and so the anticipation mounted for news that the time had finally come. 
It must have been a clear night in Babylon or Persia or wherever it was the Magi were at the time. Because one or more of them must have looked up and suddenly found themselves shocked to see what appeared to be a star unusually brilliant and bright. Throughout the ages, people have speculated as to what it was the Magi actually saw. Was it a comet? Was it a supernova? Was it some kind of conjunction of the planets? I guess we'll we'll never know. But whatever it was, it was a sign vivid enough to get the hearts of those wise men pounding fast. Could it finally have occurred, they must have thought? Could the perfect ruler that this world so desperately needs have arrived? Could the one great universal God have delivered on the great promise of coming to us, of being God with us, in the form of a specific human child, born to a virgin, perhaps, like the prophecies said, Could the light that our darkened world so desperately needs have broken through at last to fill the world with endless love? The Magi had to see for themselves. And so they saddled up and headed west. It really is striking what a profound difference there was between the heart of these wise men and the heart of the Jewish king through whose court they passed on their way to the Christ child. Herod's heart was very focused too, but it was focused primarily upon the worldly blessing list that we talked about earlier. Herod devoted his life to seeking wealth and fame, beauty and brawn, revelry and victory, power and position. This was what Herod was all about. And the history books show us that Herod was unusually gifted at getting what he wanted and achieved many of these desired blessings and held on to the throne of Israel for more than 40 years. The record also shows that this pursuit cost Herod dearly. It cost him his character, his peace of mind. It cost the lives of countless people Herod slaughtered, among them his own children, wife, and extended family. When the wise men show up in Jerusalem, Herod pretends like he's quite interested in finding the object of their desire. Go and make a careful search for the child, Herod says, and as soon as you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. But in reality, of course, Herod is is not interested in worshiping the Christ child. He's not willing to bow down to anyone other than himself. Herod is not willing to make any changes 
that don't bring him more on the worldly beatitude list. He wants to find the Christ child all right, but his purpose is to kill him because Herod will tolerate no threats to his seat on the throne. This may sound like a reach, but when I'm ruthlessly honest with myself, I recognize how easy it is to become a Herod in this life. We can begin to sit very selfishly on our own thrones at times. We can come to view the the possessions and the privileges that have been given to us as meant for our pleasure alone rather than as gifts to be used for the blessing of many. We can even come to see Jesus, really, as something of a threat to our place on the throne. And that is why this act of offering that we make tonight and do as a matter of course in the life of the Christian faith, it isn't just a ritual, it isn't just an obligation or duty. Generosity, we believe, is an opportunity to shrink the Herod that lives in all of us and to let thrive a bit more that wise part of ourselves. It's a way of breaking free of the oppressive grip of the world's blessings in order to become an agent of blessing in God's hands. And that's the invitation that God gives to us on this most holy night. The Magi present such a striking contrast to the king who received them. The wise men are what Jesus will one day describe in his list of beatitudes as people pure of heart. They live their lives with one pure passion, to know the truth and to align themselves to it. They want to know the truth so badly they search for it in the stars. They run after it in the history books. They search for it in the religious writings of the world. And when the data points they discover there begin to form a coherent pattern, they follow it even further. They leave behind their comfortable surroundings. They invest themselves in an expensive journey. They travel a great distance. Jesus once said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are those who seek, for they will find me, God says. Listen to how this promise comes true in the story of Christmas. The Bible says that after they had heard King Herod, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. 
And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. But when they saw the child with his mother Mary, they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasures and presented him with their gifts. I came very close to dying this past summer. Some of you know that. And it clarified things for me in a very important way. I realized how precious time is, how important it is to speak the truth to the people you love. And so I want to speak the truth to you tonight. I want to ask you to indulge me as I speak it maybe more sharply than I might on other Christmas Eves. Some of you come to this place tonight very clear about your object of worship. You come here tonight because you know, like the wise man, what you're meant to do with your gifts when you're in the presence of Christ. You simply come here to be reminded of him this evening, of the ancient story, to celebrate the great truth that you already know. Some of you, however, are at the other end of the spectrum. You're listening to the Christmas story tonight. You're doing so with mild interest. You're checking your watch to figure out how much longer you're going to have to listen to it. Because you're mostly wanting to dismiss it and move on to the next pursuit. You've got such a tight hold on your throne. Maybe subconsciously. I've been there myself. But you're not really all that open to any truth that might actually require God having that seat. Instead, in ways that would require changes of your life. And if that's where you're sitting, I promise to stop boring you shortly and to let you go soon. But there are some of you, there are some of you who come to this place with a growing purity of heart. You've gotten to that place in your life's journey where you are more interested than you've been before in the truth even if it requires some expense and effort to get it, even if it means some significant reconfiguration of your life, you're willing to go after it just like the Magi were. Maybe you're dealing with some pain or some fear or some guilt or some confusion or need, something more dependable in your life than, than you can anesthetize yourself to. You want to get out of the tough place you're in. Perhaps you want a truth that makes sense of life, that integrates life more coherently. Maybe you want to live more wisely and well than you've been living. Perhaps you're seeking truth that can renew your marriage, that can guide the life of your family, that can help you face your death. Perhaps you're looking for truth that can 
restore your moral vision or the vision of our nation or bring peace to our world. Wise eyes never simply accept the mess of life as it gets for us at times. Wise eyes keep seeking truth, greater truth, deeper truth, life-changing truth. So let me lay it out for you as simply as I possibly can. What the Magi discovered that night, every one of us can discover. The transforming truth that all of us are seeking is not a principle. It is not a program. It is not a politics. It is not a product. It is not even a better prayer. The transforming truth is a person. And he is seeking you and me. He made a journey much longer, far more costly than the Magi made to him. He traveled from heaven to earth. He traveled from immortality to flesh. He traveled from the manger to a cross because he loves you so much. And he invites you to love him and to live for him and to do so from this night and here on out. Will you make that decision to do so? Whether for the first time in your life or whether as an act of rededication, will you slide forward on your seat, literally or figuratively? Will you fall on your knees? Will you in your own personal way truly worship with all that you are, with all of your gifts, all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, this great Savior and Lord of whom the choir sings to us now.